Some of you might remember from your high school world history class or a college course on religion that just over 500 years ago, this Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther took a hammer and a nail to a church door and posted up 95 theses about how the church had lost its way. Specifically, he was worried about indulgences. Basically, indulgences were a part of this really complex system that developed in the medieval period for dealing with sin and repentance. Originally, they were supposed to be a way that people could make concrete amends for the harm that they had caused through sin. But by Luther's time, indulgences had become thoroughly monetized. The church was selling them, in large part to fund the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And so friars and pastors and priests in small towns like Wittenberg, where Luther was living, were advertising indulgences as essentially get out of hell free cards, or at least get out of hell for the low, low price of a few gold coins cards. What this meant in practice was that the church was holding up a system that helped rich people who could afford indulgences without any trouble feel really great about their lives while doing whatever the heck they liked and not having to change at all, and swindling poor people out of the little that they had to get by in this life. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Am I right? And so Luther was really disturbed by this self-serving weaponization of the divine. And so after years of thinking about it, he wrote down 95 theses refuting indulgences and posted them up on a church door in Wittenberg. But Luther wasn't trying to tear the church down, and he wasn't trying to create something new out of thin air. He was trying to reform the church that he knew. His theses were based in scripture, after all, and his ideas were inspired by his life in the monastery. He was taking religious practice to its ultimate conclusion, transformation of the world as we know it, including the church as we know it. For Luther, studying the scriptures and living in Christian monastic community made it utterly clear to him that the church had to be reformed. So he stood up to the church of his day, the loud one, you know, the one with money, the one backed by seminaries and political leaders, the one filled with self-assured people preaching on street corners, and he called them out, or he called them in, into what he understood to be a more faithful version of Jesus's message and example. Against all odds, he was trying to remake belief. You might have seen this remake belief thing around Root and Branch. It's on our website, emails, things of that nature. And it's a bit of a mysterious and uh, even confounding phrase. It doesn't have a clear interpretation. It probably raises more questions than it answers. And that way, it's classic Root and Branch. When I think about it, though, the first thing that it makes totally clear is that we're not only invited, but we are supposed to be in the business of remaking things as Christians, remaking the world, remaking ourselves, remaking the church, even remaking belief. We're supposed to change what we believe as we grow in understanding, and we're supposed to be changed by those beliefs as we understand our beliefs better. Or in Christian speak, we are supposed to repent. Luther's first thesis was actually about repentance. He said that our whole entire lives should be ceaseless, continual repentance. Amid today's Christian's empire, it's easy to forget that repentance doesn't mean self-loathing or experiencing pain and deprivation. It simply means change, and more specifically, changing your mind. 
I appreciate the sense of repentance because it's really pretty liberating. It shows us that repentance isn't about sticking to some unchanging eternal truth at the expense of growth and transformation, but that it encourages and makes ample space for development and change. We don't have to think about God the same way we did when we were 12 or 20 or 25. Our minds can change as we grow, and we can freely admit when we were wrong in the past, when our understanding was limited by bias or ignorance, when we'd been misled, and we can move without um, shame into a more mature and truthful perspective over the course of our lives. This changing of our minds is key to repentance itself. And so this intellectual sense of repentance is really powerful and really important. And it comes out of only one of the cultural inheritances, our cultural lineages, let's say that, that we have as Christians. It comes out of the Greek culture and specifically the Greek language. So the thing about the Greek culture overall, speaking in broad strokes, is that it tends to put a lot of emphasis on the realm of ideas and intellect. It focuses a lot on what we think and it relegates the tangible stuff of this world the material realm, what we do with our bodies, how we um, use the natural earth, things of that resource or of that nature, it relegates them to a really distant second place. Um, comes out of the Platonic tradition and this idea of the Platonic ideals and that the stuff of this world is really just um, mirages and, and things of that nature. Anyways, it's it really emphasizes ideas. And so this idea that repentance is about changing our minds, that's true, but it really focuses on the intellect, right? And so if we only think about repentance as changing our minds, or more specifically as changing other people's minds as it tends to be uh, apparently practiced in the world today, we might start to imagine that we can think our way to God or that we can think our way to love. And while thinking is important, it's not the whole shebang. If we focus solely on the level of thought, it's really easy to get lost in our heads. But thankfully, This Greek stuff is not the only um, lineage that we have as Christians. And it wouldn't have been the primary way that Jesus, as a first century Jew, was imagining repentance either. He would have been more familiar with the Jewish concept of teshuvah, which comes from the Hebrew word for return, shuv. From this perspective, repentance is about going back or returning. It's a physical movement, a journey, sometimes described as a reunion. In other words, repentance means moving, going back, physical change, actually doing something different, physically, with our bodies and with the physical stuff of this world. Even if we don't have the words for it, even if we can't articulate it, on this sense, repentance is about really like trying something different, something that living into something that changes our worldly circumstances and that by enacting this change, we actually begin to change. It suggests that we change through practice, through performance, even through ritual. And so this Remake Believe slogan that we have at Root & Branch has this concept, make believe, baked right into the middle of it. I bet when most of us hear make believe, we're reminded of like kids playing on the playground, playing wizards or pirates or dinosaurs or whatever weird thing that fascinates them. And the way that they do this make-believe is with their bodies. They say, 
I am a pirate, and they start waving their arm around like they have a sword, or they like embody what it would look like to be a dinosaur, or um, they mimic what they've seen their parents do at home if they're playing house. And it's by enacting these physical movements that actually they begin to change. Their understandings of themselves begin to change, and even in their mind's eye, the world around them begins to change. This sort of physical embodiment of change is much more this embodied sense of repentance that has more resonances with the Hebrew lineage. And so perhaps we've heard religion ridiculed as pure make-believe by people. Perhaps we thought it's just make-believe ourselves. Yet, maybe there's some truth in that. Maybe it's not wrong to think of religion as make-believe. Because the thing about make-believe is that like repentance, it asks us to combine our capacities to think and think differently and imagine wildly with our embodied power to do, to play, to act, to try on something unfamiliar or even strange and make that thing real with our bodies and our voices in order to change ourselves and in many ways, change the world. The embodied transformation of make-believe is so powerful that it can like transform swing sets into spaceships on a playground or, in the biblical sense, it can change everyday people into prophets or deacons or priests. It could even change some loaves and fishes into a feast. It's the capacity that we have as human beings to imagine the world differently and live into, live into that different vision that repentance is all about. Repentance isn't merely about thinking new thoughts or changing our minds or telling other people that they're wrong. It's certainly not about hating ourselves. It's about reshaping who we are and what we can be and living into that new vision and possibility. Repentance in the full-throated sense is about the lifelong journey of growing in our capacity to love. And Jesus was pretty skilled at this kind of remake belief. And as a result, he offers us a powerful example of repentance in action. So in the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel, we hear a pretty classic Jesus story. It begins simply enough. One day Jesus was teaching at the synagogue, doing familiar, standard, and pretty worthwhile religious things. You know, like reading scripture, talking about scripture, trying to understand it better, spending time with God and with other religiously inclined people, learning the stories of old and imagining, in many ways, himself, his ancestors of faith in it. He was doing the, the foundational work of this remake believe learning stories that become the possibilities of our lives. So there he is teaching, and suddenly someone unexpectedly enters the scene and a conflict breaks out. Luke tells the story like this. It's the 13th chapter, verses uh, 10 through 17 of Luke. Now, he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept, trying, or kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and, or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said all of this, his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. At first glance, this sounds a lot like pretty much all the other healing stories in the Gospels, and it might be easy to overlook what seems to me to be the weirdest part of the story. How the synagogue leader is totally unimpressed by the miraculous healing that he had just witnessed. It's like he didn't even notice it. Instead, he's totally focused on Jesus breaking the rules. It's really weird, right? Like, he just witnessed a miracle and he doesn't even seem moved by it at all. I think his lack of um, response to it really begs for us to dwell here and be a little bit curious about maybe what was going on with him. I mean, he's not wrong. Jesus had technically broken a rule that day. The Sabbath was to be reserved for rest, a time for reflecting on the teachings of Torah, being with family, praying. Work was prohibited. And so when the synagogue leader who observe Jesus do this, I suppose, work of a miraculous healing, uh, he was alarmed. He was worried that Jesus had broken an important religious rule. But I'm not sure that his concern for the rules can really explain the strong reaction that he had. He seemed angry, or like an angry, uptight jerk who just wanted Jesus to follow the rules for the sake of the rules. I wonder, though, if his anger was actually masking fear. If really, instead of just being so uptight and focused on the rules, it's that what Jesus did made him uncomfortable. Maybe even scared him a bit. Jesus' strange and even rebellious decision to stop teaching in order to heal this woman on that day interrupted the synagogue's well-known and reliable Sabbath rhythms. It interrupted the synagogue's leader's schedule. It pushed him out of his comfort zone. It went against what he had been taught was right and good and godly. It was a break with how things were done and had seemed to always had been done. In many ways, it challenged his authority, it challenged his education, and it challenged the worldly structures that gave his life guardrails. And then Jesus showed up and remade Believe. And he asked him to change, to repent, to change his mind and change how he does things. But it's important that we understand, it's not that Jesus was saying that there was something fundamentally awry in the teachings of Torah or among rabbis or in synagogues broadly. He was himself a committed and practicing Jew. Instead, by interrupting the status quo of the religious communities of his day, or at least the synagogue, he was challenging the people there to remember their purpose as seekers of God, loving God and loving neighbor, no matter the cost, even if it shakes things up, even if it breaks some rules. Because the truth is, sometimes people, even well-intentioned, good religious people, lose their way. They start to focus on the wrong things. They get comfortable in old ways of doing things and refuse to make necessary changes. They start to think that they have all the answers and they forget to listen. Ultimately, they fail to do the hard and spiritually demanding work of love. 
That was true in Jesus's day, and it is true in ours too. And it isn't only true about other people. You know, the megachurches that we love to hate, the fundamentalists that we desperately try to distance ourselves from, the cringy Christians that we see on social media. If we're honest with ourselves, it's also true about us. Even us here at Root and Branch. We're sometimes like the synagogue leader that day. People who might be made uncomfortable by people like Jesus who enter our midst and remake belief. People who say unfamiliar things that challenge our ideology. People who do things that are strange to us. People who interrupt our rhythms, our comfort zone. People who, by their very being, ask us to change. And yet, it is learning from and with them in order that we might learn how to love them that is our calling as Christians. This is the work of repentance, the journey of returning time and again to God by learning how to love all who come into our midst, even if it means changing our minds, even if it means doing things differently. What makes the church unique in the world is not that it holds some exclusive, unchanging secret truth of salvation in all things and places and times. It's not that it embodies this truth perfectly like a beacon on the hill, what makes the church unique is that it's a community of people committed to confessing time and again that we don't have and never will have all of the answers. People who aren't afraid to say that we need reminders, that we make mistakes, that we get distracted and we focus on the wrong things, that we are human beings and that we are limited. We have limited amounts of energy and knowledge and know-how and that love is infinite and complex and divine. And so we can only ever approximate its grandeur in our being and acting. What makes the church unique is that we strive for this love anyway, knowing that we're never gonna completely embody it. What makes us unique is that we're a community committed to doing the work of learning and unlearning ceaselessly, the work of transformation day in and day out the work of repentance our whole entire lives in order to love a little better and a little bigger, a little more surprisingly and expansively day by day. Boiled down, Remaking Believe is a collective commitment to removing the barriers that keep us from doing the work of love. Whether those barriers be doctrines that become idols or time-tested and traditional ways of doing things, our rules of propriety and normality respectability politics that keep us wedded to the predominant culture or lies we have been told about who we are and who other people are. Remaking believe is the lifelong work of tearing down these barriers and embodying love more fully each day. And so today we have an opportunity to begin articulating a bit more explicitly and collectively what remaking belief means to us. Danny has designed a really beautiful digital vision board for us where we are going to collect our ideas, our new 95 theses for a radically loving, expansive church that remakes the world in the 21st century. This is a thoroughly collaborative project because no single person could fully articulate this sort of vision. You know, the Bible was written by a bunch of different people, right? Um, theology is a long tradition of many voices, and we are going to be participating in and continuing in this um, deeply ancient practice of human beings 
collectively trying to articulate the most important, true, godly things um, together through reflection. And so we invite you to take intentional time to reflect. Reflect on um, the type of church that you want to see, the type of world you want to see, and specifically the types of transformation and change that you want to see in the world. That reflection can take many forms. You might focus on the things that you have noticed in the church or in other places that are barriers to loving wildly and boldly. And you might start to imagine how communities could be organized otherwise. Maybe you'd think about a theological concept like grace or forgiveness or resurrection that personally matters to you. And then you'd imagine how taking, if this concept were taken more seriously, it might challenge and change the norms in church or in another community. Maybe you'd simply shut your eyes and visualize a church that deeply embodies God's love. What would that church feel like? How would it make decisions? Where would it invest its time and energy? Who would speak there? Who would listen? What would it sound like, smell like, taste like? You might recall the one thing that has hurt you the most in church and say what was so wrong about it and call it what it was, blasphemy. Speak those demons down. Whatever it is, trust that your creative revisioning has a spark of the divine in it, like Luther's did, much like Jesus's did. And so if you're here in person, we have some worksheets that you can grab with communion that might help you organize your ideas. If you're online, we'll put it in the chat and it's going to live on our website if um, anybody ever wants to access it in the future or share it with friends and family. And so we'll take a little bit of time to think now and then you're invited to write your thesis on the board. And remember, the theses that we collect today and this week are just the beginning. Even though we have good ideas here at Root and Branch, we don't have all the answers. So check back on the board in the coming months and read the ideas that are emerging from the community. Ultimately, we hope that this will ignite a spark that gets more people across Chicago, across the country, even across the world, remaking belief. And that it will inspire us to put these ideas into practice here at Root and Branch and beyond. These are not just theses that are meant to live in our heads, but they're um, visions for how we hope and aspire to live in the world and in this community. So today, August 21st, 2022, marks the beginning of our 95 new theses campaign. May it be a journey that remakes us all. Amen. <laughs>